This is the Mormon Women Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hi, this is Meredith Nelson with the Mormon Women Project. I'm excited to share a long-awaited interview with you today with Yvonne Baraketse. You might recognize her if you were at our anniversary celebration in Utah in July where Nyla McBain interviewed her and where her group Nagomi Africa performed for us. On April 6, 1994, the airplane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi was shot down over Kigali. That moment was like oil on fire, setting off the devastating Rwandan genocide. Yvonne Baraketse's father, chief of staff of the Rwandan army, was also on the airplane and killed in the attack. Yvonne was 14 years old. Her immediate family lost many relatives and friends in the violent aftermath, managing themselves to escape to Belgium. Although prayer had sustained her through the terrors of war, now a refugee she ceased to pray, feeling God had abandoned her and her people. But while in Brussels, Yvonne found the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, which enabled her to forgive and look forward. She subsequently was made a refugee a second time in Hurricane Katrina, and was inspired to seek an MPA after observing relief efforts there. Yvonne lives in gratitude for her life, and has dedicated it to building bridges and lifting others through service, through education, and through dance. So Yvonne, I understand that you recently traveled to Belgium to visit your family and to remember the experiences you had together in Rwanda, and I wanted to ask what that gathering was like. Oh, the gathering was uh, uh, very important and very beautiful, I would say. So Belgium, let me just explain why Belgium. Um, when we fled from Rwanda in 1994, we we went to Belgium. Um, and so I was there all my teenage years and um, I did my um, bachelor's degree there. So that's really where, where we called home for a long time. That's where I met my husband. That's where I converted to the church. Um, and so my mom has been living there ever since. So this is where, when we need to get together, we go. And uh, that was the logic place to go and remember those 25 years after our dad was assassinated. And so it was really uh, emotionally charged and uh, also at the same time, very grateful that we were able to do that gathering because, you know, we... <laughs> Sometimes I, I, I look at ourselves and I'm like, who are we to have been saved through that tragedy versus other people? There are so many people who died in that uh, that war and genocide. And so, um, <clears throat> so for us, being able to get together those 25 years later, really, first of all, was a moment, a moment of uh, gratitude to Heavenly Father to be able to do it. And also a moment of remembrance of who our dad was, uh, his legacy. Um, the, the mass was full of people um, and who were there to support us of all venues, really. Not, you know, you know, Rwanda, the, the whole war was about ethnic, ethnic groups that were killing each other, the Tutsis and Hutus. And, and so everyone was there, regardless their ethnic group. Um, because, yeah, there was a need of having that moment to remember those dignitaries that died that during, you know, that time. But also it was also a moment to remember all the Rwandan people 
uh, in fact, during the mass, I was asked, I was asked uh, to represent my family, me and my younger sister, Josiane, to pray for, you know, for there's a moment in the Catholic mass. So I'm talking in the Catholic mass because my mom is Catholic and my family is Catholic. And so I was able to uh, to, to pray for peace um, uh, for all Rwandans who died in the tragedy. So for me, it was also a moment of healing, a moment of um, forgiveness, uh, a moment of really passing that message that it's important to forgive in order to have a peaceful life the way that the Savior taught us. So yes, I did it as a Mormon in the Catholic Church and I really felt the spirit and he was really powerful, to be honest. And then we also, there's one experience I want to share also about what happened that day. So we went to the mass and then the mass ended, but then we went together in private with our close family and friends. And I was also able to pray for my father, you know, on behalf of the family uh, when everybody was leaving the 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 reception room, the room we all gathered, and something really strange happened. Um, the spirit prompted me to not only gather everybody to sit together around my father's big portrait, um, and just, you know, as a memory for that day, but also because my dad loves so much uh, the kids, he, I felt the spirit prompted me to call all the kids who were playing outside to come and sit next to the portrait, and that took about 20 minutes by the time everybody was waiting, right, for that only one picture. But then what happened that was very interesting is that I was able to pray the exact moment, minute and hour. By the time we all settled down, it was the exact minute and hour that my dad was killed. And that wasn't wow. planned. Yeah. And mm. to me, that was really a sign that, you know, he's at peace and he was happy. His spirit was there with us. Um, I have a very strong testimony around those things. I can go on and on. And and my my one of the person in my family who's the only Mormon as I am, she she was she never met my dad. Obviously, she's my sister now, and she um she, she doesn't know him at all because you know she got married later to my brother when he she never saw him. She never even heard her voice, but she was keep saying like. She kept saying, like, oh, I felt his presence so much in this room all the time. And when that prayer happened, the exact moment as well, to me, it was, a, yeah, a big testimony that, yeah, we we are, yes, we can do so much for them, for our deceased one. And commemorating them is part of it. Praying for them is part of it. Temple work is part of it. Can you tell me a little bit about your father? What What was his legacy? Oh, my dad, he was a, a people person. He loved people. He he was humble. Um, so by the time he died, he was in the high rank, you know, in the country. He was the chief of staff of the, the, the country. So he was very humble. He used to take us visit the places where he started when he was a kid in the villages, when he would walk miles without shoes on. And, um, and he would take us there and hug people and laugh with them and there will be people who have almost no clothes who are, who are really poor you know and at that time we were kind of a privileged family living in the city so he would take us every weekend to go back to those roots and so and he was a very uh, faithful person too 
um, you know, he used to take a string every day, actually at the mass, uh, a couple of months before he died, he would take us every day almost. And uh, I mean, I can go on and on. He was a hard worker, you know, he was a public servant. Uh, his career and his life was devoted to his country to the extent of dying the day he came back from signing the treaties of peace with the president of Rwanda. Um, and so, yeah, he, mm -hmm. he was a very strong man, very charismatic too, you know, obviously leader. He loved people that for sure, regardless where they were from, uh, regardless their ethnic group, as I said, because sometimes when you hear stories about Rwanda, there's this whole caricature about, oh, these people who were Hutus or these people who were Tutsis were extremists or whatever. My dad was a Hutu in the government and he was an extremist. He loved everybody. We had friends at home who were Tutsis, who would come at home, um, you know, regardless that he was high ranked and he was uh, in the government and he was Hutu. And that is a legacy, I think, with me. Uh, even after the war, I remember seeing some of my friends, Tutsis, uh, and obviously both of us who have lost our, our loved ones, right? On my uh, on my dad's side, almost everybody was killed, okay, in, her, in his village. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, some friends who are Tutsis, they lost a lot of their loved ones. And, and so we've been able to find ways to sympathize and, you know, like, because when I was in school in, in Rwanda, in primary school, um, I went to school with Tutsis and Hutus and Twa, twice the third actually ethnic group we never mentioned much. But when we were growing up in Rwanda, that whole racism wasn't as obvious, you know what I'm saying? At least for us kids in, the, in, in our schools and, um, and at home too. My dad never really thought us like, oh, you should hate Tutsis. Uh, or you should hate Tuas, or you should hate the Hutus who are from this region. Um, and I'm really, really grateful for that because I know a lot of people in Rwanda who were taught that, uh, who were taught that they have mm. to hate somebody different. And that is those groups, those are the groups actually who stood up the most during the killings to go cure their neighbors. So, mm -hmm. and yeah, that's really um, something I'm grateful for uh, him to have told us, his children, about that. How old were you when your family left Rwanda? So I was 13. Um, yeah, almost 13. At that time, my two older siblings, they were in Europe because they were in college. And then so there was me, my older sister, Alice. And then my younger sister, Josiane, that I told you about, that we read, uh, we prayed together on the 25th uh, commemoration. And my younger brother, Fabrice. So that makes six of us. So you were raised in a tradition of faith. When, you're, when your family became refugees, when you had to flee Rwanda, and, and I know that's not the only time that you've been made a refugee, what role has your faith played in those moments of dislocation? Oh, it played a, a, a very important role throughout the, even the war. Let's actually back up when I was, because the war in Rwanda actually started in 1990. Uh, people don't mention that as much, but the whole war started in 1990, and I was nine. And I remember distinctively, I remember clearly the moment it started, the, the fear that I had in me, seeing, you know, the, the shooting going on, you know, in the hears from a distance and I never heard what it is. And my dad wasn't there. 
uh, he had to go and uh, do his duty uh, of defending the country. And so, because he was in the military at that time. And so it, it was a very fearful moment. And for me, faith is what sustained me throughout all those moments. I remember citing a prayer when I saw that, praying to Heavenly Father, pleading to him that I don't want to die now. Please, Heavenly Father, I don't want to die. I want to stay alive. I want to have... I want to do a lot of things in my life, please, 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 you know. And then because I was Catholic, I recited um, uh, Notre Père. Uh, so I speak French uh, on a regular basis. So um, how do you call it in English? You know, the prayer to Heavenly Father. The uh, in the, mm-hmm. Yeah, the Lord's Prayer. And and that is just for that moment when it happened. But then between 1990, when the, the war started, to 1994 in April, when... You know the, the 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 airplane of the the president was shut down on the sixth of April of nineteen ninety four in which my dad was that moment that day everybody got so scared because the moment the airplane got shut down, there was this huge noise that everybody heard if you lived in the city in the capital like in Kigali. And I remember praying again, like, please, Heavenly Father, let us leave. We don't want to die. I don't want to die. I prayed for my family to be safe. And, of course, at that moment, we didn't even know if our dad was still alive or not. And there were so many phone calls we received with a lot of confusion. There were two airplanes. He's not in that one, da, 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 until the moment we found out that he really died. And I remember, again, praying so much, you know, because we were so scared. Nobody knew how we were going to get out of there. The war has been going on, and you had all these groups that were already in the country. Um, the the rebellious army who started the war that we knew has attacked the country was already inside. And we were like, what is going to happen to us? Because we heard stories on how they killed people and how they cut women in half and all those crazy stuff for a little teenager, right? And so, mm. anyway, prayer was what sustained us. From that moment, of course, it was chaos when everybody heard that the that airplane was shut down that had the president and a lot of prominent people. And that was like fire. That was like oil on fire. That's really what started the whole killing neighbors. They started going killing neighbors. And they were, it was like no control of what's going on. And and I remember praying so hard, like constantly until you were, I will vanish. I said, evanuire, you know, I will fall asleep mm-hmm. from being like unconscious anymore, you know. And 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 also after that, we had to go and witness uh, where my dad land, uh, my dad's corpse landed, and I remember getting there as well and prayed so much. We we recited a lot. The in the Catholic Church they have what they call uh, losar, uh, loser, uh, or uh, chaplet, le chaplet. Uh, I don't know if it's the word in English, but those prayers, it's like we had to constantly be praying all the time, all the time, all the time. Just like really as to not fear our spirit or mind with something, a negative thought. Because at that, at mo- at that moment, not only the, the sounds of the, of the war were happening, but the smell of all those people who were dead was happening too. So you couldn't even mm-hmm. like hide from it, you know? And so... Yeah, and we stayed in Kigali for from the moment the airplane got shut down April 6th. We stayed there until um, we were able to get out of it, I think, 11th of April. So during those five days, I can tell you, we were praying all the time, all the time, because we had no idea how we were going to get out. 
so yeah and up to this day i mean uh, any moments when i confronted by very very hard moments in my life i pray um it wasn't always immediate. It, I had to go through valleys in my life, though. When I arrived in Belgium, I was completely distressed and I was completely, how do you say that, uh, uh, traumatized. And there was a moment, actually, I stopped praying, to be honest with you. I stopped praying because mm-hmm. I was, like, angry to have my father. I would say from my age, 14 onwards, maybe to 17-ish, 16, 17-ish, I stopped praying. I was like, there's no God. There's no God who loves me because if there's a God who loves me, he wouldn't let me go through this. He wouldn't take my father that I loved so much. He wouldn't have let all those people die in vain. He would have had let the hatred going on between the Tutsis and Hutus to the extent of killing each other's families and stuff. So to me, I was so angry that I stopped praying. And then until later, I can tell that later when I converted to the church. And so although before I converted to the church, I tried <laughs> because as I told you, I grew up in the Catholic church. And in the Catholic church, you do confirmation, you know, the, the gift of the Holy Ghost we receive in, the, in, the, in our church. We, you receive it in the Catholic church later. Doesn't make sense. So you receive it around 17 mm-hmm. or 18 after having a time to study and to be um, ready to have that gift of the Holy Ghost. So to me, that moment, I tried it because I was like, okay, I guess I'll have to try it because it's a logic thing to do. But I did it and still I couldn't feel the answer. I couldn't get any answer to all those questions I had, why we had to go through all of that. Until the day I, I started t- taking the, you know, the lessons with our church and, and, and learn about the plan of, of happiness. That is part of the test. It's part of the journey, but that's not it. There's a continue, you know, there's, there's a continuity. There's a way to see our deceased ones. And I mean, yeah, it can go on, but the knowledge I got it's what really shifted my mindset to be like, okay, actually God doesn't hate me. God didn't abandon me. Mm. It's me who abandoned him and who didn't know that there's a way to return back to him through the plan of salvation. How did you learn about the church? So, oh yeah. Um, so my husband and I, we, you know, we've known each other for a while when, you know, we arrived in Belgium, most of community, people in the community who left Rwanda um, during the war started, you know, mingling and getting to know each other. So my husband, you know, we started dating when I was 18. And so, you know, we've known each other, obviously, as I said, for a long time, because he used to come home and help. And, you know, he was a very nice friend at home, mostly to my mom and uh, family. And so, one day when we were dating, he, because um, he also experienced the war, by the way, he, and he, he was much older. Uh, he was 21 when he left Rwanda, um, and he almost got killed like three times, machete almost on his head and a bullet almost going in his head. Anyway, so he saw, he saw more things than I did, and he was much older. And so when we started dating um, in 1999, he... Uh, I asked him, hey, how come you're not crazy kind of a thing? That's the question I asked him. That was that moment that I, I was telling you that I was searching, like still wondering my answers about why God doesn't love me and has abandoned me. And so we started talking and 
I asked him, how come you, you know, we, we used to have a lot of spiritual conversations, by the way. Uh, we have a philosophy that we like to read and he introduced me to. And there are a lot of spiritual reading and, you know, how we say in our church, like find the knowledge in the best books. Really, there were a lot of, a lot of good books we read about, we learn about different religions and stuff. And so one day I asked him, where do you go to church? Because I want to know how come you are strong like that, mentally, spiritually, um, knowing all you've been through. Because me, I was dying inside from hatred because of what happened in my family, from questioning why God doesn't love me, from not forgiving what, what happened in my family. And so, and one day he said, you know, I go to this church and he just described the area where it is located and that was it. So he didn't want to tell me which church or anything. And so, and then I just retained all that information he gave me. And one day by surprise, by surprise, I went there without him, you know, knowing that I'm coming. Right. And that was our church uh, in, in, in Brussels, Paroisse uh, Louise. Mm. And I think they closed it right now. Uh, it's closed. I think it's been closed for the last three years. And then that was a day of present testimony meeting. And boy, I felt that spirit. I felt something I never felt for a long time. Actually, I don't even think I ever felt um, how people would open up and share about a, a Heavenly Father that is a loving Heavenly Father and how in their own current experience, they have that testimony that he exists and acknowledging his hand and I don't know who spoke and whatever they said but something really struck my heart but then that mm -hmm. wasn't it I took I took about two years though <laughs> I was a stubborn mm -hmm. person um I took about two years to 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 have the sister missionaries teach me and to to investigate and read and learn and and read the book of Mormon all those things and and one day I remember reading in the book of Mormon those wars happening between the Lamanites and Nephites and how they've been fighting and fighting. And then at a certain moment, they, they decided to make peace. And, and anyway, I could see what is going on in my country. I could see through the Lamanites and Nephites, I could see the Tutsis and Hutus, you know, that hatred that was mm -hmm. going on between them. And, and I was like, oh, so the peace, peace is possible through the gospel. And that's how the whole thing started really, the, that whole negativity I had around what happened in my country and the negativity I had in my heart started to collapse, you know. Mm -hmm. And then one day, the sister missionaries, um, they came to teach me as always. And then one day they opened the hymn and they started singing, I know that my Redeemer lives. Every single word of that hymn just kept opening my heart. Like I could feel it, you know. And then that was mm -hmm. after that hymn that I decided to convert to the church knowing that Heavenly Father lives. He's a living God, you know. He can be living in my life if I want him to, if I invite him in my life. And knowing he can wipe away my tears and my fears. And, and so I was feeling like he was Heavenly Father talked to me, um, and reminded me his love through that hymn, and that's really what shifted my decision to get baptized. And I got baptized in August, uh, 11th of August in 2001. After taking mm -hmm. about two years, yeah, of the lessons, um, and then I had to go through forgiveness as well, forgiving myself from being really too hard on myself, and also forgiving those who killed my father and my whole extended family, and forgiving, yeah, for really wipe away the the the, the hatred and 
all the darkness that was in me, I was one day going to suicide myself just to tell you how things were hard, you know, and I'm not the only one. I know a lot of people who've been through that because the trauma of the war was real, but in our community, it's not something also we consider very serious. So we don't, you know, concert psychiatrists or, you know, therapists or things like that. And that I never did neither in Belgium. So, and, and in our culture, if you did those kind of things, they will consider you crazy. So my only really therapy became at that moment, really the, the, the answer to all my problems became the gospel. And that was really what shifted my life completely, completely. Yeah. I became a new person ever since. What were the tools that you drew from, or, or were there scriptures that spoke to you? What helped you to cross that bridge of forgiveness? Oh, you know, what really helped me, first of all, acknowledging that I was a child of God who loved me and who loved all his children the same way was the first step. Because if you see the other person as a lesser person than you or unimportant, that means you're not acknowledging that God loves them. So that is the first thing. Develop that love for yourself and the love for thy neighbor. And to me, I think there was a conditioning that was behind from my education, as I was explaining to you. If I would have been raised as uh, from a family that was extremist and maybe teaching me that, oh, you should hate the neighbor, the Tutsi, then it would have been hard. So, But if, even if, let's say, it's there, I think we need to develop Christ-like love to everyone. And that is not only about ethnic. It's about white, uh, Chinese, or whatever. So anyone who is different than who we are. Because it's easy, actually, to hate different people because they are different than you. That's how racism starts. In Rwanda, what was going on is racism. End of story. You know, racism between two ethnic groups that speak the same language, the same culture almost, that... You know, we have about the same customs. It's not even like in Congo or Ghana where you have 200 tribes plus. You know, in my country, you only have three tribes that, that had so much in common that have been doing so much uh, marriage, intermarriage and stuff, you know. So to me, realizing that, first of all, also Heavenly Father loves me and loves those people. Uh, the other thing I would say is to draw on, um, it's, you know, you acknowledge that, but you also, like, make that effort to try to get to know them if you don't know them, right? right let them he hear their version of things, you know, because sometimes when there's a, a fight going on between two people and and, and the, the fight keeps going on, it's because people, one of the parties is thinking that they are right and the other one is wrong. No, it's not true. So if we are equal, that means we have to accept we both made mistakes and then talk about it and then move on, you know. Unfortunately, in Rwanda, we are not at that point yet. There were some efforts that have been happening, I agree, in within the country. But I wish one day I'll be able to sit on the same table as somebody from the other side, um, from the other government or the other you know, the other side, maybe who killed my family um, and be able to shake their hand and say, yeah, I really forgive you. But it starts in the mm -hmm. heart, really. Even if the physical forgiveness is not happening, it's really a change of heart, right? 
that is where you can find the answers. Uh, change of heart, as we say in our Book of Mormon, in our in our culture, in our Mormon culture, it's really like decide, like you're changing your heart, you you're turning away from that sin that is just driving you, drowning you down, which for me was hatred and uh, darkness and doubt and fear and and so really as you change your heart and rely more on the savior and have more faith in him that he loves you and he knows your life in his plan of salvation he's going to guide you in everything you do because he loves you he's a loving father and he wants the best for you and the way he wants the best for you is the way he wants the best for the other person so that knowledge really just changes everything having that knowledge some people don't have that knowledge, unfortunately, you know, they like, oh, this is happening and I have to revenge and I have to do that. Like, oh. And and we don't realize that when we have those negative cycles, it's a cycle. So you cure their family and then they, their kids will come and cure your own kids and their your kids will cure their own grandkids. So that cycle that was broken in the Book of Mormon by the Lamanites and the Nephites is the one cycle that needs to be broken everywhere in the world starting in rwanda you know when people have mm -hmm. the knowledge that they have to stop the cycle somebody got to make the sacrifice to stop the cycle of hatred and, and and war and then yeah then that's how the whole forgiveness happens but not everybody wants to go that way oh, that is so moving to me to hear you speak about those things yvonne and i imagine that that change of heart that you had, maybe combined with your father's legacy, are, are what has been behind the drive that you've had to build community and to lift up other refugees in your work. Could you talk about what you've been doing the last few years? Yeah, I mean, it's like three years ago about, yeah, two years, you're right, two, three years. So I founded with uh, some other friends, um, um, Gomai Africa Culture Center, really with the motive of creating more awareness of uh, people from Africa, okay? So why people from Africa? It's because I'm from Africa, and I realized when I came here as a student that a lot of people from Africa, when they get here, they get lost, or they want a place where they can go and just, you know, remember their culture. But also, I will go a step beyond, not only just get together to remember the culture, but it's also to be able to take that knowledge you have of yourself and put it at the benefit of the community. Because again, remember what I just said, like if people don't know each other, that's when the hatred starts. People, people are scared of what they don't know or who they don't know, okay? And so have, been going, have myself been through that in my own country, it was really what drove me is, okay, you're here, you're African, great, you, you're proud of who you are, but bring it to the benefit of the Utah community who never got a chance maybe to go to Africa or who maybe been to Africa as a missionary or whatever, but they want to learn more. They want to they wanna learn more, okay? And so that's the reason Goma started uh, in the first place. And, and so we have let anybody come in. It's not only people from Africa, actually. We have lots of people from America, and uh, we've had people from um, uh, Latino countries. So really, um, as then we, we, we are learning and educating the community, um, then the biases become insignificant. So this is why, you know, we keep doing this. Like right now, we, are, uh, we have worked on a play to educate also 
So we've done different projects, okay? So, but really in that mission of educating the, you know, the, the community. So as far as working with refugees, myself have been a refugee. I've been able to go sometimes volunteer uh, with refugees back in Salt Lake. Uh, when I was a student in the MPA program, I've done my internship with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we were developing some products, mentoring products to help, um, you know, unprivileged or people, whoever is going to need mentoring. And then my pilot really was centered on refugees, and I so I did go and reach out to the, there's a Swahili branch over there um, that has mostly refugees, families, and I was able to go back and, and going back to me and help actually, because I, I've been through that, I felt like I could have, you know, an impact uh, understanding what they're going through. It was painful sometimes though, because sometimes it would bring me back to the, you know, memories of what we've been through when we were in Belgium, newly arriving there. But really, I find little ways to help. I mean, that was one instance. And then sometimes my husband and I have been there and help as well uh, as a couple and with our family just to be there and participate. And then most recently, I would say we are doing a play about teaching uh, the community about, yeah, what is it to be a refugee through a journey of a young man that is a refugee, showing not only the emotions that were tied from him to leave his country to get to America, but also like showing the diversity of the different countries he crossed through in Africa. So th that's mm -hmm. another way. Like I wrote that that story and based of, on my experience or what I've seen and also educating on the cultural level that Africa, any country, all the countries have different culture as well, even if we are Africans. But right now, um, yeah, right now, maybe that's something I forgot to tell you. So Ngoma is, is a nonprofit. It's not my business. It's not something I get, I, I do for getting paid. I actually give more than I receive <laughs> in that uh, nonprofit. You know, as a founder, you understand, like we have to really gather yeah. and work hard and up to this point. So. Um, so, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm no longer president now. So I decided to just, you know, let other being able to have that experience. Um, and yeah, as we speak, we are in the transition of really, uh, getting mm -hmm. more read, uh, a new leadership based on, you know, the newcomers and whoever now has been there a while and can get that experience and exposure. Um, but yeah, I, I would keep definitely um try to get involved in helping whoever I cross in my life. It's it's been actually part of me now. It's actually been <laughs> I don't know if I can live differently now than living a, a service driven life because uh, and I don't know if I told you I was a refugee also in America. <laughs> Not only in Africa I was a refugee in America when um, the first time we came to America, my husband and I, we were in Louisiana, uh, uh, New Orleans. And so being a refugee the second time after Hurricane Katrina and see how organizations like Red Cross and all these different organizations that really the, the grassroots organizations that help people, you know, that was really what made me decide and go back and do my MPA degree at BYU. And then like, okay, now I'm going to be living a service oriented life, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so that's how, yeah, that's how I ended up in doing all these things. And, and when the spirit prompts me, really, I just do it. 
I know some people who know mm-hmm. me, they know um, many projects I've taken on for the last three years, such as B1 as well for the church. Um, it's the spirit that talks to me, the same spirit that talked to me when, you know, I was in Rwanda uh, telling me you'll be fine. The same spirit that talked to me when 25 years later, when we were, you know, um, praying for a father, like, hey, uh, pray at this moment to remember him. You know, the spirit of revelation that we all have, um, when it prompts me strongly, like, you have to do something. I, If I have the time, I do it, and I make the time for it if I don't. So that's just me. Mm. I feel like it's mm. the least I can do from being saved from that war. And because and, so many people died, I can tell you, Meredith, you have no idea. Like, in vain, kids and families and women and you know like who am I I mean who am I you know I have this life and I don't want to spoil it you know if I have a a possibility of blessing someone else Hmm. that is very powerful so Nagoma Nagoma Africa I'm not sure I said that right um tells stories through dance and music and I wanted to ask what impact uh, what 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 role dance and music have played in your life throughout all these transitions? Oh, <laughs> yes. Um, so when when we arrived in Belgium, uh, we 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 were in a we went to a dance group uh, about the same as Ngoma kind of a thing, you know, cultural group from Rwanda this time, not just Africans from different parts of Africa, but with Rwandan people, and boy, that was therapy for me. Remember I told you how depressed and damaged them, you know, how I was like really like traumatized by the war. That was the only thing that made me happy when I was dancing. So, and, and that would take me back to when my dad took us to the village, you know, his village, how the kids would come running and dancing all the time and clapping. And, and some of the songs we used to sing actually came from villages of those people who were in, in Belgium, you know, as refugees. And some were from my father's village. And some of the songs really would just remind me the, 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 the time of innocence, the time of happiness in Rwanda. So I guess that's why it became more like a therapy for me. So, yeah, so we were dancing. I was a dancer from age 14. That's about when the group started until I left Belgium. Um, and I had already formed my own group when I was 19. That one was comprised of young people. And so ever since then, I realized dance was a therapy for me. Remember I told you we never considered therapists? So that was our therapy. Mm -hmm. In in fact, I realized Mm -hmm. in the African culture, people sing and dance all the time for any occasion. If a kid is born, if uh, there's a wedding, if there's a graduation, if really seriously, it's part of what people do every day, you know? The way that people mm. here maybe, I don't know, what example can I give? You know, the, the way that people gather for games, for example, here, right? In Africa, people gather for those events and they would dance all the time. That would be culminating into a dance or a song and of happiness and joy. And so, yeah, that's really what helped me the most during those, those years. And ever since, everywhere I've been, I duplicated that. I, I will find a, a space that I have to express myself and just forget, forget about my troubles and my problems through dance. And then, 
Mm. Yeah. So from Belgium to when I came to America and the, the very first time, too, we came to Utah, like in 2005 after Hurricane Katrina, I had to find a space. And then I met a lady from Michigan, an African-American who was like, hey, I love African dance. I love African culture. Are you interested? And at that time, I was a stay-at-home mom, bored to death. And I couldn't do anything else uh, anyway at that time. And I started that group when I was pregnant with my second one, with uh, that lady. And we used to help these kids who were adopted, who are adopted by Utah families, to teach them about their culture of where, mm. you know, they, they are from, you know, so they can keep their, because there's something about keeping your identity Sometimes people, I feel like when they view those cultural groups, there's a stereotype behind it. In fact, it's positive because if those kids who leave their culture um, have a space like that, it helps them accepting who they are, ultimately being more happier people and less dangerous to the society. Does it make sense? But the Mm -hmm. other way around, if they don't accept their identity, they will be identifying themselves to gangs or whatever TV, whatever the TV portrays as to be the best person nowadays, you know, a rapper Mm -hmm. or whatever, you know. So for us, it was also a safeguard for us, for me in Belgium, to be part of a a dancing group. Um, And that's what I wanted to offer to anyone when I started Goma. And right now, uh, before I, you know... um, by the end of this summer, uh, we've been able to impact refugee kids who are in Utah County to come and have that space too. And it's interesting to see what they go through. It's the same as we did as teenagers in Belgium. Like, oh, who am I? Who am I? And then when they get there, it's like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, these are my roots. Yeah, that's the whole concept behind it, really. Kids who who Mm -hmm. are busy, are less dangerous to the society. And I'm grateful I was able to do that in Belgium because I don't think I'll be here right now if I wouldn't have been able to express myself through dance and and discover that I can be a happier person and I can be confident, I can be a leader, I can be useful, you know, my skills and whatever talent I have can be useful to other people because they're happy when they see me. And above all, in that group who were in Belgium, we used to do humanitarian service too. And that was a way to give back to. And that that is something that was dear to me too, because at that time there were refugee camps in Congo when we arrived in Belgium. And most of my extended family, they were still alive in those camps. And so with the fundraiser we used to do uh, through that group in Belgium, we used to send back books and clothes and stuff like that. So that was also a good way to feel like we were useful and really helping those we left behind. And up to this day, yeah, it's important. It's a therapy for me. I have to dance to feel just healed. And through the dances we do, we also connect. There are a lot of meanings. what we learn, like we have these different dances we do, like for women, for example. Um, so in, Af- in Rwanda, uh, I, I will speak for Rwanda, but many countries of Africa, we have dances that are tied to the maybe rite of passage, you know, from uh, womanhood, maybe from young women to womanhood, for example. And there's a whole education and learning tied to it. And so all those different movements we do really have a meaning, an educational meaning and uh, a, a spiritual connection to it as well. Um, and so, 
yeah, like there are some movements that are, are praising God, like, and those you find them. So we used a lot of those in B1, for example, because it was really a, um, dances of really worshiping and uh, gratefulness. And so, yes, we dance with our body, but we dance with our heart and spirit. And so your group performed in the B1 celebration? Yes, we did. So I choreographed the African scene and the dance with Alex Bowie. So we, we were, our group was there and then we recruited, yeah, we recruited some people in the community as well. It wasn't just our groups. And we put it all together. So when I say we, so my husband helped me very much in that. Um, and then uh, really everything came together like in a month. And so, so from there, yeah, it was just incredible how the spirit just, from the moment it prompted me to do it, how I kept me- meeting people who were ready for that, you know, that project. And so it came together really beautifully, I think. The way it came together <laughs> is just, again, through the spirit. I was mm-hmm. reading one day the church news, you know, we get feds on our emails, right, from the church news. And they were talking about how they're going to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the priesthood. Uh, given to black people and then I was uh, I was like what are they going to do exactly <laughs> that's the first question that came <laughs> in my mind because as I told you I did my internship at the church office building okay um, and mm-hmm. so I know there's not many people from Africa at the church office building okay let's be honest and so I felt like mm-hmm. oh I wonder if they would need some help you know and so and since I told you at that time I was president of Goma and we had already been there for two years a strong group and we've done some good projects um so um and then i felt prompted to call different people and i tried to call and i couldn't get anyone until one day i woke up and i was like duh i know somebody who works there i'm gonna email her and then i email her and then she's like oh i think this person is gonna be the one you need to contact. And it came to pass then when I contacted these people who were on the committee to prepare the um, the, the show. Sorry for the noise, no, it's my car that has AC problems. Um, um, so it came to pass that they just got out of a meeting uh, and like three people mentioned my name in that meeting without knowing me, without knowing you know anything about me. And so this person is like, oh, something strange just happened. Yvonne just called. It said, Yvonne, it said, Yvonne that everybody has been talking to, she just called. And that was, again, from the prompting, right? So I called them, mm-hmm. and, and the, that person reached, reached back to me. He was like, we've been looking for you. And, and I'm like, what? You've been looking for me? And then, I've been looking for you. <laughs> and so that's how we all connected. And then we wow. the spirit through the spirit and then we started going places and 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 tried to recruit people and and I spoke first to my husband about it and usually my husband he lets me do my projects and he knows it's something dear to me the dancing and all of that but he felt prompted that he should help and it came to pass because he's very artistically uh, oriented on the music level he used to conduct an orchestra in in Africa when he was young mm-hmm. And he's done a lot of different projects like that ever since. So he, he's the one who put the music together. And the whole, you mm. know, uh, sound that is in the background uh, on the African scene. So he helped on that. And then really, like, every, 
everything came together, just like wow. last minute. And then we went and started recruiting. and So he was just incredible. The spirit we mm-hmm. felt when we were performing, it's something I never, ever felt in my life, ever, ever felt in my life. So, yeah, it was just something like you do once in a lifetime. You're like, I feel like I've accomplished something great. Yeah, well, I have no African background, obviously, and I've never been to Africa, but I I felt so much joy watching that performance, and I really felt the spirit, too. So thank you for what you contributed. Uh, Yvonne, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Uh, the plan of happiness is real, but I will add that happiness is a choice. Happiness in life is a choice. We have really every day that choice to, to be like, oh, I'll wake up today and make it a useful, fruitful, make a little difference today. Or we can choose to be, you know, oriented on ourselves and just, you know, worry about our own little problems. And what I'm trying to say is that every day we can really make a difference if we look for opportunities and listen to the spirit. And, and can you imagine that mindset if this whole wide world had that mindset, like this, how different this world will be. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.